It's Thursday, February 3rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. What is the science behind the sharp rise in Omicron infections and then the rapid decline? It seems that we might have hit a peak here in the U.S. and are already seeing new infections drop in places like the U.K. and South Africa. Umer Irfan, reporter at Vox, joins us for how more immunity could be building up in the population and the variant is running out of new people to infect. Next, the IRS wants to scan your face. Starting this summer, anyone that wants to access their records on the IRS website like tax transcripts, child tax credits, or payment plans, they will need to record a video of their face and send it to a private contractor, ID.me, to confirm their identity. Drew Harwell, tech reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Finally, many questions still remain about the January 21st accident involving a truck transporting research monkeys that crashed in Pennsylvania. The latest update is that Kenya Airways, that flew the monkeys to the U.S., will not renew its contract to continue their transport. There are also still questions about Michelle Fallon's health, the woman who fell ill after contact with them. Michael Levinson, reporter at the New York Times, joins us for what we know. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The current seven-day daily average of cases is about 446,400 cases per day, a decrease of about 36% over the previous week. Joining us now is Umer Irfan, reporter at Vox. Thanks for joining us, Umer. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about these waves of the coronavirus throughout the pandemic. You know, it's kind of been a roller coaster throughout. We'll get a surge. It'll stay up there for a little minute. Then it'll have a sharp decline again. We did this most notably right now with Omicron. We had this sharp rise. It seems to have peaked. And, you know, we're going to start getting this uh, decline. We saw it in the United Kingdom. We saw it in South Africa. But what's behind all of this? Are we destined to kind of just keep going up and down the entire time with this? Not necessarily. I mean, you're right that this is sort of uh, an intrinsic pattern that we see when we have a disease outbreak. You know, you see this with other outbreaks of other infectious disease, and that's usually a function of the disease spreading from person to person, usually one person infecting more than one person, and also people being immunologically naive, meaning that there aren't a lot of people that are vaccinated or immune. So you usually typically see this in the early days of a pandemic. We're seeing this with Omicron because now we're about six months to a year out from our first wave of vaccine nations here in the United States. And also, uh, we're seeing that Omicron is more evasive of immune protection, both from vaccines and from prior infection. So effectively, it's like having basically a new virus running through a population. But just as quickly as it rises, it runs out of people to infect, and then you suddenly see a sharp decline. Now, to your point about, are we destined to do this? Not necessarily. You know, we can use a lot of different public health tactics to try to control the spread. And so we can shave off the peak and maybe help accelerate the decline. And that's why it's so important to kind of understand how these peaks are working, because it shapes what public health strategies we're using at the time, you know, the masking, the social distancing, all that stuff. I think that's kind of why it's also been so frustrating on the uh, on the part of the public. Right. You kind of get one guideline, then it changes as the, the you know, the peak starts going down as the surge starts slowing down. Guidelines are changed and then, uh, you know, the surge comes back up. And then again, you know, people are just pissed off because we're going right back to the same thing again. Right. And you saw that, you know, very recently in the United Kingdom, as the cases were coming down, they started reopening schools, they started relaxing COVID restrictions. 
And then all of a sudden, they started to plateau. They stopped declining as quickly as they were falling before. And now infections are basically, they're not rising, but they're about holding steady at the same rate. And so a lot of the progress that they were making with the existing public health measures, they've lost that. And the fear is in the US, you know, we're just a couple of weeks behind the UK generally. If we relax too soon, especially now that we're still in the middle of winter, you know, we could lose some of the progress and actually maybe perhaps see a rebound. You kind of mentioned it a little earlier uh, that the virus eventually starts running out of people to infect. Are these declines really just a, f- a matter of everybody's kind of been infected already? It's part of it. So like when it runs out of people to infect, we're talking about people that have already been infected, but we're also talking about people who take themselves out of the pathway of the virus, right? So that can also mean, you know, if we do implement, you know, things like more aggressive social distancing and mask wearing and people being more rigorous about hygiene, effectively the virus runs out of people to infect, not because those people are immune, but because they're taken out of the pathway. And so that's why these kinds of things like minimizing public gatherings or limiting gatherings with people that you don't know or in indoor and closed spaces are so important because you're not just denying the virus, you know, fresh people to infect, but by keeping people out of the way in the first place, you know, you're basically accelerating the point at which it will reach a peak and then eventually decline. Everybody has that kind of big open-ended question. At what point does it become endemic? At one point can we start really relaxing with everything? Well, I mean, the one thing that one researcher made a point to me about is that, you know, the virus doesn't care about our fatigue. So, you know, as long as it's mutating in ways that are dangerous and harmful, we will still need to implement these measures and our fatigue and our, our frustration notwithstanding. That said, I mean, they do expect that we're going to move away from these sharp peaks and more towards perhaps gentle rolling hills associated with seasonality, meaning in winter time we may see COVID surges and then those fade away in the summer or in the spring as people start heading back outdoors again. But you're right, the population level, we're seeing immunity build up. But in the United States, for instance, we still have about a quarter of the population that is unvaccinated. Now, a significant number of those unvaccinated people have been exposed to the virus at some point before as well. But there are still, you know, millions of people that have not been infected nor have been vaccinated against this, which means that there's still a large number of uh, vulnerable people. The unvaccinated folks are the people that are making up the majority of hospitalizations, severe outcomes and deaths in the current moment. And so uh, as long as that remains the case, as long as we have a large pool of people that are vulnerable to this infection, even if it is less severe, a small fraction of a large number is still a large number of people. It looks like we might have hit a peak right now with Omicron, but that doesn't mean that the healthcare system will still be taxed. Uh, You know, there's still a lot of people that are getting ill and uh, we've done stories about short staffing in hospitals and all that. So it's still uh, an ongoing problem, at least with that respect, too. That's right. You know, um, you know, the healthcare system, first of all, you know, just the stress of being facing the pandemic for the past two years, the attrition in the workforce and the burnout that you're seeing, coupled with, you know, just the normal winter rise in infections that we see. You know, we have flu now back in the mix that we didn't have in the year before. And so that's also driving up hospitalizations. And so you have to deal with that. And then also we know that uh, hospitalizations and deaths tend to be lagging indicators after cases. So even while cases decline, we may still see an increase in hospitalizations and deaths as the people who were initially infected get more severely ill. So while we are on the downward slope of new cases, the healthcare system is still likely to see similar or even rising levels of you know patients coming in. Umer Irfan, reporter at Vox, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. This is for, you know, cutting down on fraud and identity theft. 
but it's a huge sort of leap to this new kind of technology. And there's, so there's all of these questions about how is that data going to be used and protected long term. Joining us now is Drew Harwell, tech reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Drew. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's talk about an interesting thing that's going to be starting this summer. So we're going to see one of the biggest expansions of facial recognition software in every into people's everyday lives by the government. Millions of Americans are going to have to scan their faces to be able to access the IRS website to look at your tax accounts, uh, you know, anything dealing with the site. Uh, that's how they're going to confirm your identity. Uh, this is going to be done in partnership with a company called ID.me. So, Drew, uh, tell us a little bit about it, because obviously there's uh, privacy concerns. There's more facial recognition craziness with all of it. So tell us some more about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is something that people who have applied for unemployment benefits and child tax credits have had to be dealing with for a couple months. But now it's kind of coming to pretty much everybody else. If you want to access the IRS.gov website, you have to get like a pin for filing your taxes or see how your child tax credits are updating or get your payment plan, anything through the IRS website, you're going to have to look into the camera on your phone or the camera on your laptop and scan your face, get like a facial recognition scan that goes through this private contractor and to the IRS. And they say this is for, you know, cutting down on fraud and identity theft. But it's a huge sort of leap to this new kind of technology. And there's, so there's all of these questions about how is that data going to be used and protected long term. So tell me how it works, because they say that it only takes a few minutes to go through the process the majority of times. But if you don't make it or there's something that flagged, then you have to do like a video chat with somebody else. And that's where the wait times can extend. Right. Yeah. So they say that pretty much everybody will clear through this video selfie process. You won't have to talk to anybody. But if you hit a snag or it flags you or your camera doesn't work, you have to go to this other video chat thing where you actually wait for somebody that you talk to through your camera and hold up, you know, your driver's license or your passport or your utility bill. So the company says, you know, everything's going great. There's no big delays. And if there are delays, they're really temporary. But we've been hearing from a lot of people who have been having to wait for hours sometimes to get through this system. And they just find it a little unnerving, even just giving their information over to this private company in the first place. So, and, you know, we've just started tax season now, so there's many months to go So, you know, you can still e-file your taxes in the traditional way right now, but if you want to access the IRS website starting this summer, this will be a whole new thing for you. You have to sign up for an account. And so, yeah, it's, it's really kind of surprising a lot of people. Okay. So let's talk a little bit more about the privacy issues then, because that always arises when you're giving the government uh, or any company really access to, you know, biometric data, your face, all that stuff. They are going to store it, uh, store your picture, but, you know, we don't know how long they'll keep it for, you know, when they delete it. How, how does that part of it work? Yeah. So, you know, what I always tell people is like, you can change your password, but you can't change your face. So this data is typically regarded as like extremely sensitive. But when you hand it over to this company, even if you ask down the road for them to delete it, they have to keep it for at least seven years and sometimes much longer due to these federal like records retention guidelines. So you're effectively handing over some really important data to this company that can decide what they want to do with it. I mean, in this in the U.S., like there are really no laws around how facial recognition 
should be used or can be used. And so it's kind of just up to the company in terms of how they want to use it. And this company specifically, IDME, they have a whole kind of retail component of the company where they have like discounts and they have a whole marketplace. So they say that if you enter stuff in to verify your identity through the IRS, they're not going to use that to like advertise or market to you. But it's really such a blurry line in this company. It's such, you know, people worry about like, is there going to be a slippery slope effect? Like, what is this company going to do with the data long term? And again, this is a private company. This is not an agency that we really get much transparency into. So, yeah, to, you know, to, what happens in a couple of years? To your point, right? The advertising is a key part for them. So when you do sign up, they're going to ask you, you know, it's probably a little checkbox or something. Subscribe to offers and discounts, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, to the yeah. company's online right. storefront. So, you know, that's that's kind of nuts. And, you know, a lot of people are going to end up checking it and then they're going to get pissed off later. Uh, do they have a good track record, at least with done stuff that they've done so far? This company, you know, they're used by a lot of federal agencies at this point. It's now not just the IRS, but the VA, the Social Security. They're used by a bunch of companies, private companies. And they say that they have a really strong sort of software component. They've passed all these internal tests, but they haven't really opened up those tests to external review. Like they're not peer reviewed. So we can't really tell how good their data really is. And, you know, it's a fairly new relationship that they have with the government. And so it's really hard for us to grade their work. And yet they have this giant contract that we're all going to be partnering up with. So, I mean, it's a good prognosis so far, but there's still so many questions we have to answer. Drew Harwell, tech reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I walk up back on the hill and this guy tells me, he goes, oh, he's hauling cats. I'm like, oh. So I go over to look in the crate and there's this green cloth over it. So I peel it back. I stick my finger in there and go, kitty, kitty. And it pops it up and it's a monkey. Joining us now is Michael Levinson, reporter at the New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thank you. I want to talk about this interesting story. It happened on January 21st. This is this uh, truck that was carrying 100 monkeys into Pennsylvania, and it, it crashed. Uh, some of these monkeys were research monkeys. Some of them might have had some diseases. It was a big crash. There was a woman that got involved and uh, tried to look in some of the crates, I guess. She fell ill, reporting some symptoms. The big update is that the airline who transported the monkeys to the U.S. has said that they're not going to renew their contract to ship research primates to the country anymore. But there's still so many questions that remain, uh, specifically what diseases the monkeys might have had. And and this woman that was involved in all of that, Michelle Fallon, you know, her status. So, uh, Michael, help us walk through some of what we're hearing. Well, these monkeys were coming in from Mauritius, which is off the uh, eastern coast of Africa, and they came into JFK, their research monkeys. And they were being trucked through Pennsylvania. The truck that's pulling them gets sideswiped by a dump truck, and all of a sudden these crates of monkeys are spilled across the highway. As you mentioned, Ms. Fallon came upon this crash scene, kind of looked inside one of the crates, thinking there might be cats inside, and she said that a monkey hissed at her. She began then to feel irritation in her eye later that day. It was coughing, runny nose, other symptoms. So she's been given all sorts of medications just basically as a precaution to make sure she doesn't have anything 
But at this point, the authorities don't really know if any of the symptoms she's had could be related to something from the monkey. So, yes, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, she's been given rabies vaccine, antiviral medication, antibiotic eye drops because she was developing like a crust in her eye, irritation in the eyes. But we still don't know if she came down with something specifically, right? Right, exactly. We don't know. Maybe she had a cold or a flu or COVID or something else. But because she had seemingly gotten this exposure to these monkeys, which were, they were on their way to a quarantine facility, which is what they have to do when they bring animals in from overseas. They have to be basically held in quarantine for 31 days to make sure that they don't have any diseases. But of course, this truck overturned before they could get to quarantine. So it's sort of like people were obviously, you know, making references to, you know, Outbreak and all sorts of other movies that recall this kind of scenario. But here it actually happened. And so she's while these monkeys, you know, are now being quarantined after the crash, they're basically waiting to see if the monkeys had any diseases and also keeping an eye on Ms. Fallon and, and ensuring that she gets the medication she needs so that, you know, she can treat anything that might be that she might have picked up. Do we know a facility that they were headed to or specifically what kind of research they were going to be used for? They have not said which facility specifically. This kind of monkey is called a cynomolgus macaque, and they've been in really high demand for vaccine research, including coronavirus vaccine research. So we don't know, but that's uh, they're often used for these kind of um, vaccine testing. It was Kenya Airways. They said that they're not going to be doing this stuff anymore. Uh, are other airlines participating in, in this type of shipments? Other airlines have also gotten out of the animal transportation business, largely because of pressure from animal rights activists, including PETA. So PETA got people for the ethical treatment of animals, got involved after this crash, and you know wrote a letter to Kenya Airways protesting the shipment. And Kenya Airways said, we're going to stop doing this. Um, A lot of American airlines have stopped doing it. So it's actually a problem for researchers who now say we're having they're having trouble finding ways to get the monkeys they need to do their research. But it's also been a victory for animal rights groups. You know, I I remember during the pandemic, we talked a lot about supply issues. And uh, even then, there was an issue with obtaining research monkeys that they were uh, in short supply. Obviously, we needed them at the height of the pandemic when they were trying to initially uh, do some of the research for the the vaccines and all that. And uh, Mm -hmm. so even then, it's been an issue, as you mentioned, getting these research monkeys. Now it seems like the problem would be continuing even. It has. And actually, some scientists have been talking about a strategic monkey reserve, similar to the kind of like national oil and grain reserves that we have for emergencies, because they feel like it's gotten to such a critical point. They need like a, a stockpile of primates ready, you know, for any kind of testing that they need to do for the current pandemic or the next one that might come down the road. And for Ms. Fallon, what have we heard as far as her status? Uh, I noted in the story, she said that she was feeling better, still felt a little queasy, but she's doing better. She is doing better. And, you know, I talked to her a couple of times. She was initially very frightened about what had happened and called it the worst day of her life. And she's sort of frustrated with the lack of information she's been getting from health officials and from doctors who have been involved. And, you know, she's awaiting blood tests to see what she has. So I think she's just sort of waiting to find out and that she's all in the clear and that she's she's okay. Michael Levinson, reporter at The New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. All right. Thank you. Take care. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.